Howdy, folks. Welcome to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the redneck, and you bet I've gone green, and I'm trying to convince you to do it, too. And as I always do, I like to remind folks that when I say go green, I mean that in a multiple of ways. The first and most important way is from a spirit of deep ecology, not merely environmentalism or conservationism, but a kind of recognition of the interconnectedness of all life itself, a deep green, if you will. But there's another way I mean green, and that is Green Party, because I am an unabashed, unrepentant, unapologetic Green Party member, because I know that the Democratic Party leadership, not rank and file Democrats, but the Democratic Party leadership, the ones who actually control that party apparatus, are a bunch of corporatist, militarist, imperialist, who are actually neoliberals, who would rather see emerging proto-fascist in office rather than actual socialists. So I'm trying to build a bottom-up people's party that are able to build the kind of movement that we need to have the society that we so richly deserve and so desperately need. So it's in that spirit that I want to remind you that here at Redneck Gone Green, we are people's media. We are growing, getting larger, stronger, and better organized every week. And I want to ask you, please like, subscribe, comment, join us on Substack or Rumble or YouTube or Facebook. We're on a podcast. We're on all the things, but we need you to participate and forward this to others. And I am very excited to bring my weekly guest on. Her name is Dr. Harriet Fraud. Uh, I consider her a friend. Uh, I've gotten to know her over the last couple of years, and I've been really inspired uh, by the clarity of her thinking and her ability to bring a level of compassion and kindness to a very sharp political perspective. Dr. Fraud is a feminist scholar, activist, and mental health professional and therapist. She's practiced in New York City for almost four decades now. She was a founding member of the second wave feminist movement here in the U.S., co-founder of the journal Rethinking Marxism. She has her own podcast called Capitalism Hits Home that's part of the Democracy at Work network of anti-capitalist progressive media. Dr. Fraud, welcome to Redneck Gone Green. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. You know, Harry, you and I really got to know each other uh, on the David Feldman show, which is yet another people's media that was emerging. And uh, we had the privilege of overlapping and we we got into kind of a rhythm where we would, uh, I would, at the very end of my segment, you would come on a little bit early for your segment. And we, we sort of uh, would, would do a little back and forth. And what I want to do is ask you uh, as a psychotherapist to help us to understand how to make sense of this crazy making society that we're in. Yeah, well, first of all, Americans have been brought up to think we are the most powerful, best, most just nation in the world. But it isn't true. I mean, the empire is crumbling. We've lost the last three wars, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, even though they don't even have an air force. And we're losing in the Ukraine in our proxy war meant to weaken Russia where, uh, and the Russia-China alliance. We're losing there too. And 
we've thought we've brought, been brought up to think we fight for justice, but we're subsidizing Israel, no matter if uh, Biden is saying how he's urging caution. He's also sending ammunition to Israel. And so we are supporting a theocratic, because it is now a theocratic government of Orthodox Jewish theocrats in a genocide against an entire people. You know, now, Dr. I'm going to back you up because you said something that I think is very profound, uh, and that is the the creation myth of this country. We were we were brought up, and and I still remember as a little boy being taught that the United States is the most fair and just uh, country in the world. And you know what? I was told, and I remember that this country, my country, stood for liberty justice and equality. And not only that, but my country was going to bring liberty, justice and equality to everybody else in the world. And I got to say, I was so proud to be an American, right? And who wouldn't be? Like, we were the we were the good guys, right? Like, this is the narrative that we're told. And that I remember growing up and it wasn't actually until I got to university that I realized, oh my God, I've been lied to. But this right. is not the kind of lying that, like, because many of the people that lied to me were my public school teachers. See, the thing is, they taught me what they themselves believed, right? Right. It's a it's a really insidious thing because the, the reason the creation myth works, I posit, is because we want it to work. Everybody wants to live in liberty, justice, and equality, and to really confront the fact that this country is actually founded on empire. It's founded on extraction, domination, and exploitation. That's a hell of a thing to confront. It's a settler colonialism like Israel wiped out over 11 million Native Americans. You know, really? Wow. And it, it, that's the, and, and it's hard to, to come to terms with that. But what I believe, and, and again, as a therapist, uh, I'm asking you to weigh in on it. Because what I think is that it's actually quite liberating to actually confront the, the reality. Uh, and then if we confront the reality of the history, that means it doesn't have to be our future. Well, that's exactly the parallel for psychotherapy. If you confront the reality of your childhood, then you confront can face a different future. The one thing that is consistent and that predicts good parenting is ability to have compassion for yourself as a child. But if you say, ah, dad beat us, but it was great, the chances are you'll be beating your own kids. You have to come to terms with your past in order to make a different future. And America hasn't. I was taught, I went to PS 81 every year. We learned about the wonderful pilgrims that settled us we didn't learn about the bonds people that most of the people who came to America and almost all the women were bonds women who were given the option. They were arrested for minutia. They had the, Britain had this same policy for uh, Australia and then given the choice of jail or go to the colonies so that women could then reproduce for England and have citizens there to replace the native citizens and their culture. 
And so that most Americans who came were either prisoners freed or bonds women. The women who came overwhelmingly were bonds women who were enslaved for seven years until they paid off their passage. And, and I didn't hear about Bacon's Rebellion, which was the institution of racism here, where uh, Bacon was angry at the governor of Virginia and organized slaves and freed slaves and bonds people and ordinary people together to fight against the governor, after which they instituted racial difference and forbid so, so racial connection. I'm so glad you brought up Bacon's Rebellion. I want to back up a moment for uh, viewers and listeners of Redneck Gone Green to really underscore what uh, Dr. Fraud is pointing out is that the founding of this country was a founding violence. It was obviously a founding violence of the indigenous people who already lived here, uh, right? Uh, the, the the Puritans didn't discover America because the, uh, the, the tens of millions of people here were not lost. They didn't need to be found, right? There was a vibrant civilization and culture that was already here. And amongst the the, the first several waves uh, of white folks or Europeans that came, most of them came in bondage themselves, right? That's right. That, 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 that yes, there was a, a, a fraction of them who were come, who came escaping religious persecution. Uh, so it's not an outright lie, but it's such a uh, a distortion of of reality that it 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 obfuscates and confuses the fact that this was an imperial project, a settler colonial project from the very beginning, and it was a project of the largest to that point the largest empire the world had ever seen, and that is the of course uh, the British Empire. And I got to say, Harriet. Uh, I say all empires suck, right? All empires are horrible. But I, like so many others, have a particular hatred of the English empire because my ancestors were from Scotland and Ireland. And I know that in the enclosure movement, uh, the English lords, not ordinary English people, I want to be very clear, my hatred is of English empire, not of the English people. But the enclosure movement basically pushed uh, ordinary people who were living in right relationship, in balance, uh, in, a, in a deep ecological symbiotic relationship with land, pushed, the empire pushes them off their land, traumatized my ancestors. My ancestors came to this continent and traumatized the indigenous people of this uh, continent. So there's plenty of trauma to go around. I posit that one of the reasons I want you as a as a mental health professional, a therapist, and a Marxist, is to say, how do we learn to heal ourselves from this trauma and the generational trauma and the individual trauma that capitalism visits upon us to get back to a, a society that is healthy and in balance? So, uh, Harriet, uh, we're not hearing you now. I think that uh, we, we're having a problem with the volume. I'm so sorry. I'm not sure what's going on, but uh, we've we've lost your audio. So.
Hmm. We were hearing you fine, but now we don't hear you. Uh, I'm not sure what to uh, what to suggest at this point. So uh, while Harriet tries to uh, adjust that, uh, I will uh, let folks know that you're listening and or watching Redneck Gone Green. Uh, this is a weekly podcast that uh, I do, bringing together uh, social change activists, mostly from the U.S., but occasionally we'll have uh, international guests as well. But the point is to ask ourselves, uh, what is to be done? Because we know that we are in the midst of a true conjuncture. There is an ecological collapse. It's not just coming. Uh, and the... Uh, the reality is that we need to build a completely new system. And Jack, I'm going to ask you to come in and I'm going to jump on uh, the text and uh, try to uh, let uh, Harriet know that it seems like the headphones are the issue. Um, so if you could try that, uh, uh, try taking your headphones off and unplugging them and see if that helps. No, I think uh, I think you need to change the settings. <clears throat> you need to change the settings, Harriet. I think is is probably what the issue is. But I'm afraid that she can't hear us, David. So if you can just text her and okay. get her get her to change the settings so that um, it's back to the computer audio. We'll get this working, folks. <laughs> Thank you for your patience. We appreciate you. So, yeah. Okay. Oh, my goodness. We've got you back. Awesome. Oh, All here right. I am. Good. Yeah, well, what I was saying in response to David is in all therapy and all psychological work, you first have to face who you are and what your problem is. That's why in every 12-step program, and 12 steps are the most successful therapeutic programs and the most widespread in the United States, in every little town, there's an AA, right? And the first step is to say, I am Harriet, and I am an alcoholic or a narcotics user or a sex abuser or whatever else. You have to face your own history and what you've done. And Americans haven't done that. You know, we don't learn those things. I learned all about the Constitution, supposedly, in civics class. I didn't know that only 6% of Americans could vote with our great liberal Constitution, that you had to be white, you had to be male, you had to own property, and that eliminated 94% of the population. So our great democracy, was 6% of the population. I had no idea. We have to face these things and say, we can do better. This is where we've been and we can do better. But if you don't face that, you're lost. And I think right now, Americans are aroused on an issue about another country in which we are not directly involved in a way they haven't been in my whole long lifetime because they watch that the United States is arming 
a genocide performing settler colonialism, which was attacked because of apartheid. Not that you, collective punishment is a terrible humanitarian crime. And that's what Hamas did by killing 1,200 Israelis and raping and mutilating various Israelis they ran into. But then to respond by killing 19,000 people when 1,200 have been killed and by taking away their food and water and starving them and destroying their children and bombing their refugee camps and their hospitals and their schools, this is a fascistic move, collective punishment. And, you know, Netanyahu is clearly the, the prime minister of Israel is clearly guilty of war crimes. Yes. Uh, and uh, Dr. Fraud, what I really want to underscore is you yourself are an American Jew. Uh, and there is, in my circles, a very loud, very vocal, very broad uh, Jewish voice for peace uh, yes. uh, in this country. But you never like outside of really lefty uh, media sources, the corporate media never covers this movement. No, because they are, the right wing is trying to use anti-Semitism as a cover. Elise Stepanik of New York is big on calling anyone who supports Palestinian rights to live as an anti-Semite. She, of course, said nothing about uh, Charlottesville or about Trump entertaining Nick Fuentes, famous fascist, or uh, what's his name, Jay, Jay-Z, whatever, who's also a fascist, or saying that the people who ran down Heather Heyer and killed her in Charlottesville, they're all good people. You know, and Dr. Fraud, this is the point that I really want to underscore, and that is that the corporate media is using a narrative framework uh, that says uh, Israel, the Israelis are victims, uh, Palestinians are terrorists, uh, and that is the relentless narrative that is repeated over and over. And the reality is that that's like, not only is it untrue, but it's literally reversing what we know is the history of uh, Palestine. And again, I think it's really important to underscore that especially amongst young Jews, the data is very clear. Uh, in the U.S., the young Americans in general are uh, opposing uh, the Israeli government and its horrific practices. They support Palestinians and Palestinian liberation. And that's true amongst Jews and Gentiles. It's actually an age difference whenever you, you take right. a look at the Not a religious difference, but the right wing is trying to say that it is anti-Semitic to oppose this war. And these are people who are often anti-Semites themselves. It's a very cynical use of that term. And what they do is they suppress the news and the participation of things like the Jewish Voice for Peace. Jewish Voices for Peace closed Grand Central Station because they occupied it. They closed the Statue of Liberty and read the poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor by Emma Lazarus, a Jew. They have gone to the Thanksgiving parade 
and made statements. They are banned from the Columbia campus, Columbia University, truth and light, right? They are banned from other campuses. The news is silent because the idea that anti-Semitism is not the same as anti-genocide on Israel's part is something that they're hiding. I also think that young people in the United States are in a terrible position. The United States between 1820 and the 1970s provided for white families headed by a white male, and that was the vast majority at that time, a chance that every generation could do better than the last. That if you were a blue collar worker, you could get a white collar child educated. If you were a white collar child, you could get a professional of some kind. There was a family wage for white men, which of course ended when white well-paid male jobs were exported. And the majority of young people now are having the doors of opportunity closed on their fingers. And that includes, by the way, whiteness is not actually going to provide uh, much protection from no. this academic structure. Neither does education, uh, because I, I, I think it's really worth pointing out that this generation of Americans are the first generation who intuit, understand, and know they're not going to do as well financially as their parents did. Like the, the way that the, the capitalist economy has always grown has been able to buy off the working class. That's but right. That is to an end. That is coming to an end. And college debt is now even bigger than credit card debt in the United States. So if they wanted to get that little leg up, that little leg up, they'll be in debt for at least 20 years. This is an obscene thing that has happened to young people. I'm old. When I was young, I had lots of opportunities. I got a grant to go through graduate school. So did my husband. So did many of our friends. The United States was giving out all sorts of money and had money. Now there's less money because the empire is crumbling and it's all going to the top. Even as late as 1980, you were only allowed to inherit $600,000. Now it's 24 million. Well, think about that folks. I want to, I want to stop for a moment because this is an objective bit of data that changed in the 1980s. The, the maximum amount that could be passed without significant inheritance tax was $600,000. Today, that number is $24 million. Maybe it's uh, $22 million. $22 million. Uh, A couple of million. But the point is that like those, the ratio there is outrageous. And, and Harriet, I, I want to get back to your expertise as a mental health professional and a therapist. Like, because you, you are also, you have real clarity on the political economy of what capitalism is. It extracts the surplus value of the labor of the worker, but within a growing economy, there's a way to basically buy off the working class, right? Uh, like the, they don't have that anymore. China is growing, not us. And right. the economy, and even where the economy is growing, we're moving into laborless production or some version of it, right? 
between automation, robotics, technology. The reality is that that uh, the ability for the capitalist class to extract what they believe is their their goddess given right to profits, right? You can't extract the surplus value of the uh, of the worker because you need fewer and fewer workers, right? So this is my point. We like I think that many people, whether they intellectually understand it, feel in their guts in every way they can tell that the society is shifting, and that I believe, Doctor Fraud, is why Donald Trump is appealing to such a broad base of 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 working class people because he's stoking their fears those fears are justified yes but his solution is it's the immigrants fault it's black folks fault it's it's the otherization rather than the ruling elite that's right however what he has recognized is that people need to be connected they're disconnected they're lost they they feel cheated and alone and he has provided a movement like Bernie provided. Our revolution was a movement. People were involved. People were emotionally and intellectually involved. People's participation was wanted. It wasn't just an election. It was a movement. Donald Trump has a movement and it has emotional appeal and you feel included. And Bernie did that. And they knifed him in the back because and they, they let's, corporate elite. Let's be clear: the neoliberal Democratic Party establishment is who knifed Bernie Sanders in the back. Absolutely. If you Absolutely. look at the polling data, the the Bernie Sanders, like if if you actually ask people uh, who were Democratic Party voters, who would you like to be the Democratic Party nominee? If if that was the question, Bernie Sanders was a supermajority favorite of most of the Democrats. Uh, they literally, the Democratic National Committee rigged the system and ran a relentless campaign that said Bernie can't beat Trump, even though the objective data showed Bernie did better against Trump uh, than Hillary Clinton. I mean, this was just an amazing bit of psychological warfare that the Democratic National Committee conducted against its own voters. And what Trump has said and spread about Biden is he's old. What the reason that takes is not because of his age. After all, Trump is in terrible shape and I think he's 77, but it's that that is the old way. It doesn't work. It is the old system. It's the same old and people need something else because they're in new terrible circumstances and so they need something new people think it's his age but it isn't his age it's the same old story it's no hope obama won on hope and change and on inspiring people in a movement biden has no movement it's so true. Folks, you're listening to Redneck Gone Green. I'm your host, David Cobb. I am the Redneck and I have gone green and I'm trying to convince others to join me in doing so. Uh, our guest this week is Dr. Harriet Fraud. Uh, Dr. Fraud is a feminist scholar, activist, and mental health professional who's practiced in New York City for 
40, uh, four decades now. Yeah. She was a founding member of second wave feminist movement in the U.S., was one of the co-founders of the journal Rethinking Marxism. Uh, you can find her work on her website, Harriet Fraud, F-R-A-A-D.com. She's got her own podcast called Capitalism Hits Home, which is part of the Democracy at Work Consortium, which is a nonprofit that produces anti-capitalist progressive media. Uh, Dr. Fraud, I want to make sure that we circle back uh, to this idea of the movement because like the 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 uh, the data is clear. People want to be part not only of movements, but they want to be part of something bigger than themselves, right? That's and, right. And, and and capitalism alienates us. Uh, capitalism as an economic system uh, literally uh, creates a sense of loneliness and, and a lack of connection. Well, also, the mass of people now are in four areas of jobs, all of which use them as an addenda to a machine where their individuality means nothing and where they have very little to say. And those employers are Amazon, Walmart, fast food, and call centers where you have a script and where if you are idle for a moment, a buzzer goes off to say, get, get to it. At Amazon, you are on the clock. If you are not move, making movements in an adequate time, there's a buzzer that goes off in your ear and the repetitive movements are injurious. And so they have free pain meds all over Amazon to keep the workers working. You count as nothing. Your health counts as nothing. If you are working in fast food, let's say McDonald's, you have two minutes and 23 seconds to assemble the burger. If you don't, the sound goes off. There is no point, even if there's no one in the store, if you put your elbows on the counter and stand for a minute and just take a breath, the clicker goes off and your supervisor talks to you. At Walmart, if there's nobody in your department where you're working and selling things, you can't sit down and only get up when somebody comes into your department to look where you show them things. In call centers, you have to make the calls fast and you have to tell people that the solution is not that you're gonna fix what, whatever it is that they're supposed to fix, but they'll, but get a more expensive version of that for which you're paid extra. They are constantly barraged and they mean nothing. And people don't mean anything anymore. Their lives don't have meaning unless they join a union. And that is a way that Americans are discovering class and millions of Americans are unionizing and they're realizing, hey, we're all workers together because and you know, the academic workers are organizing, museum workers are organizing, the 48,000 people who just won their strike against the University of California were people like adjunct professors, graduate assistants, lab assistants and tech, and tech people together, unionizing to be recognized, to, to join others, to have some sense. My work has meaning. I have some say in my life. 
In New York, 340,000 UPS workers threatened to strike and got what they wanted. And in Detroit and elsewhere, 400,000 auto workers just successfully struck. And there's millions more. Millions. And, uh, I, I do think it's important to, to point out, uh, as I've heard uh, you and uh, uh, your husband, Rick Wolf, at uh, Democracy at Work, uh, point out repeatedly, and that is we are living in a burgeoning militant labor movement in this country. Sure. I mean, the number of workers who are uh, standing up and making demands for changes is something I haven't seen in my lifetime. I mean, this is this looks reminiscent of the 1930s. 30s. Yes. Uh, and I would argue in large part that's because in the 1930s, fascism was arising for the same basic reason, and that is because the entire political economy was shifting from an agrarian society to an industrial one. Uh, and people, even if they didn't really understand intellectually exactly what was happening and why, they felt it. They understood things were shifting. And fascism, remember, fascism, y'all, is not merely authoritarianism. It's not merely uh, brutality. That's part of it, to be sure. But it's also a political economy. It is how to organize society. And it's a way to organize society against the us versus them. Uh, and it is a highly nationalistic one. So in the U.S., uh, uh, fascism is always uh, uh, connected to white supremacy. But remember, globally, as fascism is rising, you have brown and black skinned fascists, right? Because it's always about the hyper nationalism. And what I'm arguing, Harriet, is that what we're seeing in the 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 new militant labor movement or the re-emerging militant labor movement is a reaction to the fact that the society, like whether I like it or not, we're in a revolutionary time period because the entire political economy is being restructured. And one of the first things fascist governments do, as they did in Germany and as uh, Zelensky did in the Ukraine. And elsewhere in, in Poland, they're doing this is ban unions because unions are a recognition. We are all together as workers and fascism comes in when capitalism is failing. There was, a, you know, I see it as a, a barrel, a wooden barrel surrounded by metal bands. The barrel is capitalism. When capitalism starts falling apart, the iron bands of Fascism hold it together. They keep a class system going, but they get ordinary people excited. They do ban unions. The, the unity is in obedience to the great leader. And just as Trump is the great leader, he doesn't have anyone else really for them to learn, to lean to or learn from. No matter how irrational he is or how crazy, he is the great leader. And I think what's happening is American capitalism is in many ways falling apart. It's exported and it's not, you know, and we're failing. China is outstripping us. They are growing twice, twice as fast as we are. Look, the companies exported their machines and their industry to China to save money for themselves because Chinese workers were disciplined and worked for cheap and didn't have any ecological constraints or benefits. So they made huge money. That's how they bought our system. But 
what's happening is workers of the United States want to count. They say, my work counts. Without my work, you're, you're getting nothing. You're producing no cars without my assembling them and putting them together and painting them and creating them. And that is a statement of we, we can have power. We are not just the adjuncts to your profit. That's huge. And people are starting to feel terrible. They're starting to feel their lives are meaningless. The church is weakened because it hasn't delivered its promises. And people are desperate. I live in New York City. I can't take a walk of four blocks without coming across somebody who's totally lost their mind, who's screaming or scratching or doing something totally bizarre because they totally lost any kind of social grip. One of the indicators of insanity is that you lose the social link of language. What you say doesn't make sense to anyone anymore. And think people's personal lives are falling apart. Our divorce rate, our legal separation and divorce rate is 50%, but at least 20% of people don't have kids to fight over or money to fight over, so they just split, make an agreement and split. And so that's dissolving too. And we, we don't have a kind of belief system and hope for a future because our future is being taken away from us. And you know, uh, Harriet, one of the things that I, I wanna uh, circle back to is that the, the data is actually clear and unequivocal. And that is unemployment, poverty and housing insecurity cause and is correlated to mental illness. So these these are these are incredibly related functions, right? Uh, and then to add insult to injury, let's remember that we don't actually have a like we the housing crisis is actually because the system is working the way it's designed to work, which is to treat access to housing as a commodity that's bought and paid for at a profit. And one way that you can tell that that is true is that for every one houseless or homeless person, there are between four to six empty housing units available. Like sure. The problem is not a, f a function of inventory. It's a function of capitalism, of treating housing as a commodity that's bought and paid for. This is literally the problem. And I could go down the list. The healthcare system is not broken. The healthcare system is working exactly as it's designed to operate, which is to treat access to healthcare as a commodity to be bought and paid for at a profit. Like, again, this is the problem. Unless we change the system, of our political economy until we decide that human values of health and dignity are actually something that we are going to value, then we're never going to be able to tinker at the margins with policies. Like this is why I am a revolutionary. Now I'm a peaceful revolutionary, but I am a revolutionary without doubt. We need to restructure this entire society. We totally do. We totally do. Also, we are failing. We are failing. The uh, Look, the United States and Europe hoped 
that they could geopolitically realign themselves by destroying the alliance between Russia that has the most natural resources in the world and China that has the most people and therefore weaken the BRICS alliance, which um, is powerful. The United States dollar was king in, you know, 50 years ago, 90% of the world held their wealth in US dollars. Now it's less than 45%. So Harriet, I'm going to stop you because some of the uh, listeners or viewers may not recognize BRICS is an intergovernmental organization uh, nationally that is comprised of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And many uh, others now have joined, but those that's are the, true. That's those, were, those were the uh, uh, original, they were called emerging market countries. Uh, and they were trying to establish deeper ties amongst themselves because what they were realizing uh, was that they were being dominated uh, by the US and European uh, trade forces. So they created BRICS as a way for, quote, emerging markets to defend themselves. And this is why it's so important to understand that the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, uh, the World Trade Organization, all of these globalized uh, systems to, quote, regulate trade is not free market. Uh, it is a grossly manipulated market economy uh, that is used to benefit the already wealthy and to make them even wealthier and to undermine environmental protection laws, worker safety laws, environmental laws, et cetera. Like, th like this myth of the free market, it doesn't exist. Now, like the, the market itself, like we can argue about whether there even should be a market, but I want to be really clear about this. And that is there is no market in an economy that government has not created. The very existence of the market does not exist outside of political decisions. And BRICS now has less, the G7, which are the big European countries, now have less wealth than BRICS. And they're being, people are, are buying and organizing with BRICS because the World Bank, which is operated by the G7, demands austerity for payback, whereas the BRICS nations don't. They are rising as a world power. And uh, the United States and Europe are diminishing. And so what we could do as a nation in that light is say, okay, like France and Germany and other, Belgium, other imperialist powers who were much wealthier at some time, we still have wealth. Let's do something for our own people and create industries that allow the world to live. Instead of spending 840 billion on weapons and losing all the wars anyway, and just militarizing the world, let's make all people's basic needs for food, for shelter, for housing, for health, for safety, make them non-commodified and spend our money that way. And to be very clear, when we say non-commodified, to break it down without dumbing it down, y'all, all that Harriet means and all that I mean and all that the 
the colleagues that we work with mean is to say, if there is something that you need as a human to survive, we should treat that as a right. That's and that right. means that our social contract should be such that a bare minimum of safe, nutritious food is available, that adequate housing is available, that like that these are all things that should be treated as part of a social construct compact, the contract, if you will, that says these are things that, that we should collectively do together. That's all. It's mm -hmm. not it's not hard uh, to imagine. It's impossible to do, though, as long as you have a billionaire class who are hoarding all the wealth, power, and decision-making. Now, in the 30s, there were so many movements, the 30s and early 40s, the Communist Party was very strong, the Socialist Parties, the two Socialist Parties were strong, the left was strong, and they were demonstrating in the streets. The changes that happened under the New Deal were not just because FDR was nice. So for example, the Farm Recovery Act that helped small farms. It didn't happen just because he was a sweet guy. It happened because the Iowa militias were hanging the judges that condemned family farms and people were armed and coming into auctions and making sure that nobody bid more than a dollar on anybody's farm. And there were pitched battles in the streets. That's why, we don't learn that in our history, but that's why. And so that Americans are learning that, wait a minute, ever since the 50s, they got scared, the capitalist class. They were being taxed 94.6% tax on their profits because FDR could say to his fellow wealthy people, look, they'll take it all. That's where they are. You better allow this. And with that, in the, in the Great Depression, he created unemployment industry the insurance, and he created the civil, civilian, um, civilian Conservation Corps, and he did he and amazing arts programs in every city. He did that because he, he taxed them. Now what they do is they don't tax them. Eric Adams, our mayor in New York, has decided not to change the subsidies for big buildings who were subsidized because they had heavy employment. Now they don't because there's a lot of home working. There's a lot of remote work. He still wants to give them subsidies. He doesn't want to tax billionaires. And they're the ones with the money. Instead, what they like to do is they like to borrow money. And who do they borrow money from? Those same rich people who not only are not taxed, but they get our money. For interest. They sell bonds and the profit goes to them. The money goes to them because it's a system they've rigged and people are understanding that and trying to change the system. First of all, changing it at their workplace so they're not cheated so much and realizing, wait a minute, we have to fight back. Our country is being taken away from us and some people are not joining with other people and fighting back. They're just going mad because they're trying individually to deal and they can't. Dr. Fraud, we're coming to the end of the program. Uh, I want to make sure uh, to, to really underscore a point that, that you've just made about 
that capitalism is literally driving a level of uh, mental illness. Uh, it's insanity. Uh, and uh, it, I want to lift up Jacqueline, who is a, a frequent viewer and listener, uh, who wrote in to say, it's not just people's physical needs that need to be met, it's their emotional and psychological needs. And this is why I argue that communitarian collaborative approaches to the political economy don't just meet like the material needs, but they also meet our needs for connectivity, our needs to, that we are social creatures. We are supposed to be in relationship. And that is something I think that capitalism does not do for us. In fact, it strips it from us. It does. You sit in your own house, watch your own TV that you bought or your own VCR that you bought and everything is sold and isolated. People need connection. They need hope. They need connection and they need empowerment and they need connection with intimate people and with larger a larger circle that they're sometimes friendly with, with organizations they believe in, even if it's just the PTA, other people trying to do something that's positive for their community. And they need connection to the world, which influences them. Connection is the basis of mental health. And people, when they're disconnected, are not doing well. People, when they're involved in a movement, which is what Trump's given his followers, they're involved in a movement, or what the labor movement gives people, a sense of connection and hope and empowerment. And that's what we need. And that's why we need a left movement here. We need a unity of the climate activists, people who want co-ops, people who are anti-capitalist, people who want racial justice, people who want sexual justice, people who want justice for women, and that like an umbrella, and those are the panels of the umbrella, but the center hold is class, that we it are the mass people, that we, without us, they're nothing, and we have to unite all our various movements together. A movement of movements. You know, uh, Harriet, you remind me of the great uh, anthem, Solidarity Forever. And, right. Uh, let, let, how does it go? When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? It's the union that makes us strong. And, and the chorus is solidarity forever. Forever. And I think that this is, I really want to uh, end on this note. The lie of the rugged individualist that has been taught is a is a perversion it's a, lie. it's a lie like nobody succeeds alone and that yeah. includes the billionaire class they have literally rigged things to extract and exploit from us right but there's enough to go around now uh but we can't just we do care. it in an industrialized way we've actually got to return to the ecological sustainability of saying we need to be in balance we need to take care of each other, but there's also with technology, with automation, appropriate technology, we could be living in paradise right now. We could, we have the money and the world could be a fair world. We have the money, but people have to unite. And what's very exciting in um, right now in Denmark, I, no, it's in Sweden, Tesla, 
of course, owned by Elon Musk, billionaire, who got his money from his father who owns emerald mines in South Africa. You can imagine the conditions there. He, they will not ship his cars out. They are on strike in Sweden and the Norwegians won't bring them from the port. They won't bring them to the port and export them. And other countries are joining because the union makes them strong and because they see that solidarity. And Amazon workers around the world are organizing because that is what makes us connected and mentally healthy and physically powerful and politically hopeful. Harriet, thank you so much for an inspirational conversation. Where can folks keep up with you? Well, they could go to my website, harrietfraud.com. They could go to Capitalism Hits Home and connect to me through that. They could go to hfraad at gmail.com and write to me. All those right. Harry, we're going to have you back on. This was a rollicking good conversation. It always is. You're a smart lady. uh, And I love your ability to bring politics and uh, mental health issues uh, so squarely into focus. Folks, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation. This is David Cobb signing off. Remember, like, comment, and share. Please go to the Substack, Redneck Gone Green. Sign up so that we can continue to grow this audience and grow a movement. Peace.